We're continuing our study through the book of Psalms, the first book of the Psalm. This, uh, this year, we hope, by God's grace, to go through the first 41 Psalms together, expositionally. And um, it's interesting, you know, when you, when you buy commentaries and when you read a lot of commentaries, when you listen to a lot of sermons, it's interesting to see the passages that, that pastors skip. Even expositors. You know, like, you hear great expositors. I'm going I'm to exposit this book, and they get to certain chapters. It's like, what happened? You know, they just left it. It's not even in their commentary. Psalm, I told Aaron last week, Psalm 5, in the major, the, the, most, of the, most of the commentaries and most of the series on Psalms that I've read and heard, goes from Psalm 5 to Psalm 8. Nobody wants to deal with 6 and 7. So you get nervous as a pastor. Like, these guys are way smarter than I am, and they wouldn't deal with it. So there must be things here that I don't know if I need to walk, wade out into that water, you know. And so, uh, so this week, as I was looking at Psalm 7, about halfway through the week, um, I thought in my mind, now, I know why they don't preach this psalm that much. <laughs> this is a very difficult passage for us. And I think it, uh, the last part of the week became refreshing to my soul when I realized some things about this psalm that I think are going to be necessary even before I read it. So I want to give you a few notes here, nuggets, to latch onto. Then we're going to read it and exposit it, hopefully. First of all, we have to remove from our uh, primary thoughts here eternal justice, eternal righteousness. That's true. And Christians, as Christians, we typically focus in on that aspect of eternal righteousness. Who is our eternal righteousness? Who is, I'm giving you a hint, it's a who. Who is our eternal righteousness? Jesus Christ. Who is it that will cause us to stand in the ultimate day of judgment? Jesus Christ. That's not what David's talking about here. David's not talking about that. He believes that, but he's not talking about that here. He's talking about earthly, temporal justice and judgment. Now, if you get those things confused, it will perplex you to the point you say, boy, Psalm 8 looks good, let's just get there, right? And you'll have an epiphany on Thursday and say, it must not be supposed to preach that passage, we'll go to Psalm 8, it's easier, I'll deal with it. Uh, I admit, I, my heart was almost there, and, um, and then it dawned on me, I'm dealing with this in the wrong category. So this is earthly and temporal. A lot of the focus here is, not that it doesn't have eternal weight, but this is the primary focus, it is earthly and temporal. Secondly, we have to remember that all of the Old Testament, According to the book of Hebrews, according to the Apostle Paul, according to Jesus in Luke 24, all of the Old Testament is a pointer, a shadow, and a type. The Old Testament does three things as I see it. It points us to God, whether that be through types, I mean, whether that be through people or laws or customs. It shadows for us. That's a different category. What the shadow seems to be, according to Hebrews, are particular um, customary things of specifically Israel. 
mainly bound up in the law that were customary and, 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 um, and cultural, but they shadowed for us a forecoming grace that we would get fully in the new covenant. Or it's a type. The Old Testament is a type. In a type, we typically think of either an institution or a person who in themselves embodies a role or a, a fact or an a, uh, a instance that would be fully illuminated by the antitype, the antitype greater than Jesus, the one Jesus Christ. So the type moves to the antitype into Jesus Christ. Okay, So the Old Testament serves us in this way. So we can look back and we can see that it points to God, that it shadows for us the coming grace of God, and it types or typifies for us the coming Savior or giver of grace, Jesus Christ. David here is serving for us as a type, and I think it's important that we know that going in, because he's going to say some things in this prayer that are very difficult for us. The title of this sermon is Trusting God's Justice. Trusting God's Justice. And verse seven, and chapter 7 reads, <clears throat> that the setting of this, the setting, the musical setting, is, is one that we're uncertain of. And then you see that he sang this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Benjaminite. Now, a Benjaminite would have been of the tribe of Saul. The Benjaminites were particularly troublesome for David. Why? Because he, he succeeded uh, he seceded in after Saul. He was from another tribe. The Benjaminites had had the first king of Israel. And so wrongly believed that would continue in their tribe. But it didn't. It moved. They lost, they lost power. And they hated David in turn. Many of them did. Much of, his, uh, much of his reproach throughout his time will be from this one tribe. Uh, most of the trouble stirs up for him in uh, the tribe of Benjamin. And that roots back into his time with Saul. So the introduction tells us the setting. All right, verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, he's talking about the things that are being said about him. If I've done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then, you had to insert the then there, but it's assumed in verse 5. Then, if I've done these things, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And then let him trample my life to the ground. And then let him lay my glory in the dust. So it's an if-then statement. If I've done evil, if I have done the things that they're charging me with, then let them pursue my soul, let them trample my life, let them lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. 
There it is. Temporal, not eternal. And according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation toward those who are evil every day. If a man does not repent, particularly if this man who's attacking David does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Interestingly, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this in the exposition, so I want to say it here. That phrase, the Most High, is spoken by Abram and Melchizedek. In the story of Abram and Melchizedek, Melchizedek is said to be a priest of the Most High. It has Canaanite origins, and David is the only other in Scripture who takes that up and gives it to God. It's interesting to me that he does because it's the Canaanites, the Philistines, and those around him which were his great outward enemies, and he took their name for Baal and said, it doesn't belong to Baal, that belongs to Jehovah, and gave, gave his God the great name, Most High. All right, so let's look at this together. Let's, let's dig through it a little. First of all, first point, we trust God to protect us from injustice. Notice the the title of the sermon is Trusting in God's Justice. The problem with us is we're often not trusting God's justice, are we? Now, I want to get a little historical on you, okay, and apply it to us. And then bring it down personally. As a big picture, we often, as a nation, do not trust the justice of God. Okay? Okay? Therefore, we enter wars to bring about what we perceive to be justice rather than leaving it to God to bring about justice. We enter unjust wars. Not just our nation, many nations do this, but let's just talk about the United States, right? Not only at this universal or worldwide level do we not enter justice, But we often pervert justice in the world. We often take from the poor to give to the rich what they already have. We often take from the rich to give to the poor what we perceive they need. We don't trust the justice of God. We don't see ourselves as ministers of the justice of God. So when I say... The title is Trust in the Justice of God. It's purposeful. Because I know as Americans we struggle with this. We have wrongly taken on the persona that our country is always just. What we need to do is take on the persona 
of others and say and know and others before us and know that our country is not always just. That we do enter unjust wars. That we do prosecute the poor and prosecute the rich thinking we bring justice and we're only subverting justice. Okay? That's at a national level. At a more personal level, we often do not trust the justice of God. I can tell you how I know it's true. Because so much of our time is consumed what someone has done to us, what they have said about us, or how they have harmed us. So much of our time is consumed with what we feel is unjust toward us as an individual. So little of our time is consumed with injustice done toward God. Most of it is consumed with our feeling of being treated unjust. And so when we step back and look at this psalm, I think what we're going to see is a pattern of a godly man who's typifying for us the person and work of Jesus Christ in the fact that he trusts God's justice. He doesn't defend himself. You're going to notice that's missing in the passage. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't dare to say he's perfect and others are wrong. He simply lays his case out in front of the just judge and knows that God will make it right. First of all, we trust God to protect us from injustice. Notice this, David doesn't run to his servants, nor to his messengers, nor to his advisors to protect him from the attacks from without. Remember the setting here that he's run out of town by Absalom. He needs to be protected. His name is being trampled. He has lost his kingdom to a rebellious inner working. His greatest friend and prophet and uh, and and. and Uh, advisor has turned against him his general is wavering in his support and his son is leading the rebellion yet he doesn't seek to defend himself who does he seek to defend him God oh Lord my God hear the great names of God Yahweh is combined with the idea of a great God A personal God with a great transcendent God. In you do I take refuge. I don't take refuge in my advisors. I don't take refuge in my ability to fight a war. I don't take refuge in anything that I can see with my eyes. I take refuge in you. Save me now from all the pursuers and deliver me. In our injustice, are we trusting God? Or are we trusting others? Are we trusting ourselves? Are we trusting our friends? Are we trusting our family? Are we trusting our parents? When you are offended, do you personally take on this attitude? God, you defend me. You're my refuge. You protect me. Or do you quickly answer back? And I know that it's, it's a temptation to simply answer back quickly, to Show that you're okay. To show that you're in the right. To show that you've been wronged. But that's not what David does. He trusts God to handle the injustice done against him. He says, if you won't help me, God, look how true it is, then I will be torn to pieces. My soul will have no deliverer. If you can't deliver me, no one can deliver me. 
So my question to you at the first five verses is, do you trust in God to correct the injustice done against you? Or do you seek to defend yourself? Look at verses 3 through 5. The if then. He says here, understanding, I may be the one in the wrong. I may have done the sin that they accuse me of. Possibly. I don't think I have. He holds that out. But if I've done it, then I deserve what I get. Repay me, Lord. If I've done this enemy wrong, if I've done this friend wrong, then you repay me by, by causing me to be trampled upon, to be put underfoot, to be continually spoken against. Take my great glory and do away with it. Bury it. So he's here throwing himself on the just one. He's not trusting others. He's trusting God because he sees God as just. And he says, if I'm wrong, if you find me in the wrong, punish me. I deserve it. We trust God to protect us from injustice when we seek God as our defender and we trust his judgment as truth. That's what we see in the first five verses. Now, just so you don't think I'm in the bubble here and I've never walked maybe where you're walking, there was a season of my life. It lasted about six years, so it wasn't a day or two, where almost weekly, my, it came to my ears that I was being attacked verbally. Lies were being spread. Some of the people that I had trusted for long years were turned against me. In those moments, a choice had to be made. I wish I could stand here and tell you I always made the right choice, but I didn't. Sometimes I defended myself. Let me tell you what happened when I defended myself. The lies got worse. The attacks came more harshly. I couldn't win. I would go home at night and I would tell Amy, crying in my pillow, like a baby. Even when I tell the truth, I'm charged with lying. I went personally to the people who were attacking me, and they lied to my face. What are you going to do? In that season of my life, I learned a little about this passage. You remember that it's commonly said that the guilty dog cries the loudest? You ever heard that expression? Methinks he protests too much? That's the way Shakespeare said it. See, we have this built-in complex that when someone starts defending themselves, what do we think? They must be guilty. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You've heard that one. Can I just give you some biblical advice? Don't defend yourself. Trust God. Love your enemy. Right here we find the kernel of Jesus' statement, turn the other cheek. This is it. David, in all of his humanity, wants to run out and grab this man by the throat, this cush. And beat him senseless. That's how I feel about it. 
That's what I wanted to do. So I think David wanted to do it. But he doesn't. Why? He trusts God's justice. He hides behind God and says, if you won't defend me, I won't be defended. That's not a, that's not a resigned to failure kind of attitude. That's a resigned to the goodness of God. I'm not going to defend myself. We not only see it in Jesus, we see it in Paul. Where do we find him in 2 Corinthians? The apostate teachers are charging him with being a liar, of being one who went back on his word. What does he say? Nothing in defense of himself. Only defends the gospel. Only defends the name of God. His people come to him, Jesus, in his ministry and say, Hey, Jesus, these people are doing miracles not in your name, not in baptizing in your name. What do you want to do about it? Are they not following under your authority? What do you want to do about it? Jesus says, if they're not against us, they're for us. Leave them alone. He never sought his own name to be upheld by his own power. He sought it from his father. He let his father lift him up. David never sought it for himself. He let his father lift him up. He saw God as his refuge. So I just would ask the question of you. Are you trusting the justice of God today? Or do you seek... Rather, to keep your own glory, to keep your own life, and to keep your own soul. First of all, we trust that God will protect us from injustice. Secondly, we call on God for justice. Publicly, David would not defend himself. Privately, with God, he does. He calls on God for justice. This is the part that causes everybody the most trouble. This is the one that the commentators don't want to deal with. Why? Because he asks God, look what he does, he asks God to pour out fury against his enemies. Be angry at them, God. He says, you have appointed a judgment. So, take the assembly of the peoples, gather it, and sit over the top of it and judge. That's a bold request. That's a bold request. So in public, he's quiet. He, he trusts God's justice. In private, in trusting God's justice, he calls for God to act in justice. So often we got the equation backwards in my, in my life, in your life, don't we? Publicly, we're loud in protesting that they attack us. And privately, we hardly ever say a prayer to God. This reveals that our hearts do not trust God as the just one as the one who will ultimately render judgment. We see here in this court, so to speak, scenery in verse 7, the assembly of the people gathered around here, God, and He's sitting over them in judgment. It's to God's, God's justice that David makes his appeal. So that thirdly, in verses 8-11, through 11, we hold to God's justice and seek to mirror His heart of relief for the oppressed. Here we find the practical outworkings of believing and trusting in the justice of God where when we put feet to that justice and begin to live for the oppressed. Here he takes on a deeper cause, in other words. Rather than defend himself, he defends those who are defenseless. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Job 31, Job does the same thing. It's a very parallel idea. It's parallel throughout the Scriptures. Jesus often left judgment to God. He did not judge in the moment when He was being attacked or lied about or accused falsely. He remained silent. It's a show that He trusted God. 
When he's at his trial and he's being falsely accused and they're making up all manners of lies about him, have you ever wondered why he's quiet? Why doesn't he answer? Everything they're saying is wrong. Why doesn't he answer? Because he trusts the justice of God. He has no need to defend himself. God will defend me. God will have his day. I will not defend myself. David's doing the same thing here. Judge me, God. If you find me to be unrighteous, then I'm unrighteous. But we find here this verse 9. Let the evil one, the wicked, their wicked, come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. At the end of David's tenure, in the end of his kingdom, he began to live this out more truly than ever before as he passed on the kingdom to his son Solomon. His great days of justice began to unfold before the people. Why? Because he took up the mirror. He mirrored for the people the heart of God in justice. He saw God as his shield, in verse 10, who saves the upright in heart, and it caused him to do likewise. In God, he found a righteous judge, and it made him judge righteously. And a God who feels indignation every day. So David did. At the end of his tenure, we find David putting in account everything that needed to be done in a just and godly way to pass the kingdom to his son Solomon, who would be the greater son. Now, let me make application here. As you look at this psalm, more than anything, what you find is that David's cause is God's cause. David doesn't personally seek after his own defense. He defends the cause that God defends. So let me make this application to us. As we look at the law of God, we find an overriding theme. God loves the oppressed. They take the form of the poor. They take the form of those dwelling in Israel who were not in Israel, who were not belonging to Israel ethnically. The orphan. Over and over again, God, in his own way, tells the people, take care of them. He puts together very practical ways for them to care for the poor and the disenfranchised. He does it by saying, leave gleanings at the end of your field. Why? So that they can come out and glean, those who are poor. That way you're caring for them. He does it by giving a seventh year where the land shall rest. And what is meant by this year of jubilee? Why does he say he did it? So that the poor who have sown nothing might come out and glean what's there naturally growing, what's left over and producing from years past. So they might live and, be, and prosper. God gives very specific rules and very specific judgments to care for those who are disenfranchised, who have no representative. God takes their cause on. We move forward into the prophets. One of the great themes of the minor prophets is current, immediate justice. They cry out for God to act justly. In the New Testament, Jesus does the same. Jesus defends those who are defenseless. How? He goes to a woman at a well in Samaria, and he says, I had need to go there. Why? To lift her up. To take care of her needs. 
When the poor were without food, Jesus fed them. When the sick were laid before him, he healed them. What is being exemplified to us? The justice of God. The temporal, earthly justice of God. It carried through to the New Testament church, didn't it? So in Acts 2, we find them having everything in common. In Acts 4, we find them selling all they had to care for the needs of the poor. In Acts 6, the needs have grown so great that they appoint seven men to wait the tables. That doesn't mean they bust the tables and cleared them off after everyone got done eating. They sat down behind money changer tables and gave to the poor what they needed to survive. The New Testament church became a people of justice. Not just as it recorded for us in the Bible, but it's recorded in the history that surrounds the Bible. The Romans had no place for fatherless children. As a matter of fact, we know from historical accounts that they often took unwanted children and put them outside the walls of the city. Put them out there to be eaten, to starve to death, to die outside of their sight. Do you know what group of people regularly waited outside the walls? To take those children? The Christians. Why? Because of this idea of justice. They saw in God a heart of justice. God, you sit in judgment over the people. You are a righteous and good judge. If I have sinned, David says, then I deserve these things. But I place myself in your judgment because in his, in his heart and mind, he knows he's innocent like Job. And then he begins to mirror the justice of God. He begins to pour out justice. So I just want to ask this question in this section. Application question. Are you concerned with the cause of the oppressed? Or do you find yourself saying, let them wait a little longer? It's not their time yet. The poor will always be among us. You ever use that phrase? Oh, well, you know what the Bible says, poor people are always going to be here. And you say it as if they don't, they, they fall beneath your realm of help. That's not the way the Bible uses that phrase. Is the cause of the oppressed your cause? Or do you find yourself, unlike David, more concerned about justifying yourself? more concerned about keeping for yourself protection under the law for your people and people like you? Or do you put on the face of God and care for those who have no defender? Now, I would say a lot of good things about Grace Fellowship in this regard. The ministry that you have shown towards orphans and the poor and the widows in many ways is to be commended. It's amazing to me how you respond when you're asked. But what I would like for me and for you is that we would be able to rise up beyond being asked and simply have it as a way of life. That we would naturally, instinctively see the injustice in this world and not be okay with it. And not turn a blind eye to it and not excuse it away. Because that's what typically happens for me. I need psalms like Psalm 7, the hard ones, because my mode of operation is to say, well, in eternity it will all be made right. Right? You ever catch that? Well, there's nothing I can do. It's too big for me, preacher. God will make it right one day. 
That's not the attitude David takes here. David says, I'm being done wrong today. I won't defend myself, God will defend me. And I'm going to call on God to do such. And I'm going to mirror to them how God does it. He made the issue of his kingdom to make the wrongs right. And I think like that, the church must take that attitude. We can't say, God will one day deal with it. We rather need to say, God wants to deal with it now. How might I be a part of this cause? We have godly examples everywhere. I pray that we ask the question earnestly of ourselves: Is the cause of the oppressed our cause? Because I can tell you it's God's cause. Fourth and finally, we are comforted by the ultimate justice of God against the unjust. It, when, when, what happens often in and historically and in our own lives is we get frustrated because we seek to help those who need help, but it just keeps happening. They keep being in need of help and others continue to oppress evilly. And so we tend to want to give up. We want to say, it's too hard. It's too long. The process isn't working. That's not what David does. Verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. What we see here is David saying, ultimately, God will make this right. So we don't forget the ultimate righteousness and justice of God. We just simply don't default to that immediately rather than doing practically what the Bible calls us to do. We take up the cause of the oppressed, understanding we will never eradicate all evil until God eradicates it. But He will. And in that space is the space of the gospel. You might ask yourself, why do we do what we do with Ignite? Just to make it personal to Grace Fellowship. Why are we banding with six other churches in this community to try to help a mobile home park that doesn't want to help itself? And I don't say that judgmentally. I say that as one who's taught with them. And they sound a lot like people who don't want help. That are locked in their plight in life. So why should I care? Because God cares. What do you mean? He's going to judge them if they keep doing that. Yes, he is. And that should drive us to meet temporal justice out for them. To give us the space to say to them, if you don't repent, this momentary justice will end. God will wet his sword. God has already bent his bow. Judgment is coming if you don't repent. We don't often... you know the accusation against our types, right? We're heartless. All we care about is doctrine, and we don't care about the poor. We don't care about the cause of the oppressed. We don't look after the... Some of that is just garbage, okay? But some of it is true. Because we, unlike David, haven't done enough for the here and now justice. That gives us the space to preach the ultimate justice in Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying simply feed the poor and just keep giving them food and never speak to them about the gospel, but rather to give the poor food in such a way that you cause them to come into the place of realization of their sins so you might say to them, and you can say to them with love and authority, you're going to die in your sin. 
And if you do, God will judge you. And this earthly food you've eaten will only be good for today. But the heavenly food which our Father offers you in His Son, Jesus Christ, is real and eternal and good, and it will never fail you. We don't get that chance because we're not in the trailer parks. That's where David would be. That's where David would be. We're not fully bought into the idea of equality. We're not fully engaged in the cause of the oppressed. We, we tamper around the edge of it. So this psalm calls us to God's heart. The justice of God. Do you trust it? Are you mirroring it? It will give you the opportunity for the call of the gospel. The, the opportunity to say all the things David says in his prayer from 12 through 16 only comes about if you are willing to love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you and curse you. That's the only time you get the opportunity to tell the fool, if you continue in your way, God will judge you harshly and eternally. Verse 17 is simply a rejoinder of the praise he gives in verses 8 through 11. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. He's thanking God for his righteousness. And praising God because his name is worthy of praise. So we praise and worship God. As a subset of this point four, because ultimately his justice and righteousness will be shown to be praiseworthy. So as we seek to apply this sermon, I think it's helpful to look at the way Paul applied this lesson. In Romans 12, Paul applies our psalm, the attitude and the teaching of our psalm. And it's a great segue into the Lord's Supper. Paul says, these are the marks of a true Christian. Let love be genuine. Do what? Abhor what is evil. Don't excuse it away. Don't say it's just a condition of the fallen world. Don't say, well, the poor with us always. Don't say injustice will be here until Jesus comes again. Say, I hate evil. That's the mark of a true Christian. Love genuineness, hate evil, hold fast to what is good. Don't ever relent in giving away the goodness of the truth of God. Hold on to it. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. There it is. God's my defender. Be constant in hope. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That paragraph sums up the attitude expressed for us in Psalm 7. I'm being attacked. I won't return the attack. I will trust God's justice and I will mirror that to the people. I will live in such a way as to show that God is just. Bless those who persecute you. Even when they throw rocks at you and when they curse your name, David, bless them. Bless and do not curse them. As a matter of fact, stop your servants from cursing back. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with what? The lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Psalm 7, God is my defender. I won't avenge myself. Now, what's his logic? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Meet his temporal need. Feed him. If he's thirsty, do what? Meet his temporal need. Give to him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You will cause him to say, you will cause him to say in his heart, why does he do these things? And you will immediately be able to say, because I want you to repent. Because God's justice is waiting at the door for your soul. Don't miss the space for practical, hands-on, loving works in this world which bring about the questions that will lead to the answer of Christ. Don't do it. David didn't forget. Let's don't forget. Ultimately, we trust that God will have His way and that righteousness will reign. How can we trust that? Because He's promised it so in His Word. I had to learn a tough lesson in this way about that six years. It dawned on me one day as I was in one of my crying phases, I have a choice. I will either seek justice for my name and I will prove that I've been lied about and I will regain my own honor or I will be quiet. In being quiet, what I'm saying is not that I'm defeated, but rather that I trust God. Because this is the reason. God judges all sin. He won't miss one. How can I be confident of that? Because listen, you might die before God gets justice. How do I know? Because on the day of judgment, all sin will be accounted for. Ultimate justice sits behind our temporal justice. When we seek temporal justice, we keep in mind, even if it doesn't happen in this life, I'm going to work towards it for God's glory, not for my own. But if it doesn't happen, God's day is coming. And when he stands in judgment, he will judge all those present. Either they are in Christ, therefore their sins have been paid. The person who's offending you, who's against you, and this is what I had to come to realize, may very well be your brother or sister in Christ. If so, your sin and their sin has been paid for in Christ. So for you to exact any punishment against them is really unjust, not just. You've exacted a double standard. You've said the work and finished work and sacrifice of God through Christ is not enough. I've got to do something to make them pay. So on that judgment day, Psalm 7 will be shown to be right because Jesus will say, I took all their sin. And I paid the price. And in that moment, the person that was offended by their brother or sister in Christ will say, he did get justice. 
I was done right in the end. Or he will look at those outside himself and say, depart from me into outer darkness. And then they will spend all of eternity in judgment. Again, if I temporally add any judgment to that, all I'm saying is hell's not enough. I'm saying God's not good enough. What he's doing to me is not enough. What he's doing for me is not enough. So I return to the title. Do you trust in the justice of God or not? That's the question I have to answer. Is God's cause my cause? Am I taking on the needs of the oppressed in such a way to shine forth the gospel, which is the ultimate justice God will have in Christ? This what Psalm 7 makes us do is question ourselves, And it ain't always fun. I spent a lot of Friday and Saturday repenting. So if you spend a lot of Sunday and Monday repenting, join the club. It's okay. There's enough for all of us. But more than anything, don't turn away from this word. In it, you, if you do, you will do harm to your soul and to the soul of those that you seek vengeance against. Don't do it. But rather, seek God's cause. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word.